This is Teach for All Talks, a conversation with global education thought leaders. Today's episode features Wendy Kopp in conversation with Ben Rattray, founder and CEO of Change.org. Change.org is an online petition platform that enables ordinary citizens to affect important change. We are very excited to have with us today um, Ben Rattray. Did it's I great to be here. Rattray. That's right. Um, who founded Change.org seven years ago. Yes. Um, and I, I'm really excited about this particular discussion because I'm still trying to get my head around how we can utilize the platform that he and his team has developed to accelerate the face of change um, in education. Um, it, so you all may know what change.org is. I'm assuming you do because everyone who's anyone seems to know already what it is. But um, they have accomplished just so it's this online site. I'm going to let you explain it. I won't even try. No but the thing the reason that this is such an important discussion I think for us is if you look at the changes that have been affected through this site um, like to convince whole airlines not to use styrofoam cups to convince the Boy Scouts to, you know, re remove their ban on, um, you know, letting gay youth come into their organizations to get Bank of America to not have debit card fees um, on new cards to get the Bank of England to include a woman on British banknotes. I mean, these are like big changes. Um, and yet it seems that we haven't quite figured out in education how to utilize this um, for the, the purpose of positive change. So I'm really excited to get our community's heads around how to do it. And there's probably no one better to help us do that than Ben himself. So um, before we get started, I just want to encourage everyone to ask questions here um, and also uh, online uh, using Twitter, at Wendy Kopp. Ben is at B Rattray, R-A-T-T-R-A-Y. Um, and we're going to use the uh, hashtag TFAL talks. Um, and you can also email noran.con at teachforall.org. So, um, Ben, let's go back to, to why you started change.org. Can you share that? Happy to, and extremely excited to be here as well. Huge fan of the organization and of Wendy's. Uh, I actually had the, the chance to speak with you for the first time just a couple months ago, but have known, obviously, of you. Kind of an icon, obviously, as you know, in the social <laughs> enterprise space for many, many years. So totally happy to be here. Um, so I was not supposed to be here. I was supposed to be uh, actually here in New York, but as an investment banker. It was my aspiration my entire life, uh, all the way through my senior year at Stanford. Uh, and I had a, a pretty profound personal experience that shifted that. So I, I went home uh, my winter quarter and had a one of my younger brothers who came out as gay, completely unexpectedly. And he said then, the thing that was most difficult for him uh, as a young, closeted, at that point, gay American, weren't people that were explicitly anti-gay, but those who refused to stand up and to speak out against them, people like me, his own brother. <laughs> and it was tough. It was, frankly, the, the point at which I was most ashamed, probably my entire life, having just never done anything at all. I cared about social change in the abstract. I studied science and uh, but hadn't translated that general interest into specific action. And so, in really a fit of kind of shame for a number of weeks, decided really to transform things. Didn't know what I wanted to do or how to do it, but I ended up going to D.C., where I thought was the epicenter of potential change in America. Um, and, uh, and more than anything, I think, found the inability of everyday people to have influence in their own politics and what Americans like to think is the greatest democracy. 
Um, and that was sort of the, the gestation of the, of the company. Cool. And when you started out, how, how did you, what was the form of change.org when you began? It was different than it is today. So as with a lot of internet platforms, we had sort of a vision that was broadly, I think, correct, but the specific implementation took four years. Uh, so the first version we launched was around kind of a social network for social change. It was always about how do you use technology to lower the barriers of collective action, to mobilize people of like mind for specific campaigns. We had you know, the ability to start uh, groups around climate change, around education improvement, around poverty. And you could sort of discuss the issues and raise money or do offline events and any number of things. And it failed. And it failed not because the, the insight that we had underlying the vision, which is the collective action is one of the most powerful forces for social change, but the specific implementation was too complicated. And so we went through a number of iterations for the first four years of almost systemic failure. Mm. And then what led you to, to the current the current form. Yeah. Maybe explain to us how it works. Yeah, just I'll explain. Sure. I'll, I'll do both maybe in, in a coupled way. So the platform at the time allowed people to do any number of things, one of which was start a petition. And we thought at the time, look, petitions don't matter, they're trivial, they don't have impact, which isn't untrue historically. Uh, but we didn't realize was historically the reason that's the case. And it's mostly because they've been bland, boring, staid actions that have targeted mostly the UN, the President, and Congress which are the three most difficult to change institutions in the entire country. <laughs> uh, and instead of specific actions that can make real change. And so we allowed people to start petitions. And there was one in particular that illustrated us this incredible potential of truly everyday people starting a winning campaign. So I was in my place in, uh, in San Francisco, and we were just really an American-focused site at the time. And there was a petition that was started by a South African woman. And the story that was written was incredible. She. Um, one of our good friends had just been uh, taken and, and thrown into a shack and raped and almost killed. And the reason is she's a lesbian woman and the man was trying to turn her straight. It's this awful thing called corrective rape. In South Africa, it happens about 10 times a week in Cape Town alone. Hideous. And she didn't know what to do, but she had seen a change.org petition in Uganda around LGBT issues just about a month before. So in a fit of sort of frustration and anger, she s goes to her, like, an internet cafe uh, and end up using sort of a, a password from her sister to start a petition, asking the government to take this seriously. And no network, no social media connections. And she gets 170,000 people from 150 countries to take action. Mm. It becomes the biggest news story in South Africa that week. It embarrasses the government. Mm. They then go use that same tool, that petition tool, to email people, go offline, organize in front of parliament for four weeks, after decades of literally ignoring the issue entirely, not even acknowledging it in their presence, apologizes, passes a national task force to investigate and to stop the incidents of corrective rape in that country. Wow. I mean, an incredible illustration of how truly the most systemically disadvantaged people, which is incredible, two things. One, amazing personal story, and then social media that spread that virally could have immense yeah. power in ways historically you could never do. And so that was the real illustration of the power that then pivoted the entire organization of focusing on people-powered petitions and campaigns globally. Yeah. And now, what's what's the scope of this now? Like, how many countries do you operate in? Yes, yeah, so we have staff in 18 countries right now. Uh, and we have about 75, 77, I guess, million users right now. There's more than 20,000 campaigns, petitions that are started every month around the world. Uh, and I think some of the most exciting stuff to us is what's happening outside the U.S. It's funny. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in a not dissimilar way, we sort of, I think, proved the model that it is possible to empower people using online tools 
in the U.S. to sort of mobilize for change. But the desire for people to come together and make a difference is not, certainly not uniquely American, not uniquely Western. It is a fundamentally human dimension. And we think now, if you look at across Thailand and the Philippines and Brazil and in Turkey and places that we're really taking off, mm -hmm. uh, we're immensely excited about that global reach. Yeah. Um, and well, do you have a theory about why that is? Like why it's taking off more in other countries? Yeah, so if you look in the U.S., I think there's two things. And there are significant problems in the United States. But if you look relative comparison to other countries like Indonesia, where there's just rampant corruption and the systemic inequality is even more significant, not to diminish it at all in the U.S., um, is one. And the second is there isn't as robust a civil society sector that has been developed that represents citizen voice. So in the U.S., you have a tremendous number of NGOs that are fairly well funded that use online and offline campaign tactics mm -hmm. for both state but mostly national change. In most other countries, you don't have certainly nearly as much, and in some cases, very little, and in many cases, largely funded by the government, mm -hmm. and therefore averse, and understandably, to sort of do effective advocacy at a national level. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think we're seeing more virality in places like the Philippines, and places like Brazil, and places like Argentina, even. Yeah, cool. Um, now, when we last met, you explained a little bit about what you've learned actually makes for a successful campaign. Yeah. Um, can you share that with us? Yeah. And feel free to use examples or you know whatever. Yeah. Uh, so the traditional inclination for people building movements, what they like to think of, of movements, is let's get as many people as possible and make the most aspirational ask possible. Mm -hmm. So it's we want to go sort of end the use of toxins on all food in America and in additives, and so we're going to petition Congress. Um, and it's just incredibly difficult to win campaigns of that size. And so what we find is two things are crucial. One is a problem big enough to be meaningful, but small enough to be winnable within a short period of time, hugely important. The second is using not abstract ideas and policy, but the narratives of everyday people, how they're impacted by these mm. issues. So I'll give one example. One of my favorite, I guess, from last year in the US, there's um, there's been a movement in the United States for a while around food additives and potential toxins that are largely banned in Europe, but not in the US. And the, the Food and Drug Administration has been lobbied by lots of food advocates for a long time to change regulations, and they've been mostly uh, unsuccessful. And there's a 15-year-old girl in the US uh, last year that finds out uh, about all these food additives, and she realizes her favorite drink, was Gatorade, has this chemical called BVO that's banned in a bunch of countries, Japan, across Europe. Um, but the, uh, the, s the food industry's lobby to allow this to be legal in the U.S. and actually, in fact, not even to research it from the FDA. So this 15-year-old girl thinks this is ridiculous, and so she petitions Gatorade, following a lot of other young women who started campaigns, to remove the chemical. Simple ask. She gets 150,000 people to join over the next couple weeks. She's on the front page of the New York Times business section. She's on Dr. Oz, a very popular TV show daytime in the United States, millions of viewers, and really shames Gatorade. And after literally decades of lobbying to avoid investigation around this chemical, Gatorade, because of the overwhelming public pressure, ends up removing the chemical analysis globally. And the second thing that happens is not just that campaign wins. It inspires other young people to start similar petitions to other brands of drinks and whatnot, so much so that hundreds of thousands more join, dozens more campaigns, and after about five, six more months, Coke and Pepsi announced globally they're going to remove 100% of all these chemicals, all yeah. BVL. It's amazing. And what's compelling is two things there. Is one, so if you look at sort of the, the issue of the, sort of the magnitude of this issue on toxins, if you try to address it whole cloth, 
in one fell swoop, you're not going to succeed. It's specific, small increment. If I told you the most important mechanism for building a movement around food additives in the United States is actually petitioning Gatorade or on a specific additive in a particular drink, mm. it seems ridiculous. Similar to how it seems crazy that the most important civil rights battle in American history was started in large part through storytelling yeah. because a woman refused to walk to the back of a bus and it moved from city to city and lunch counter to lunch counter and it builds national movements through specific individual actions. So it's both the small, specific, winnable campaign and then the story of a 15-year-old girl versus kind of an abstract narrative yeah. of the policy and the debate and deliberation around numbers. Yeah. I mean, human beings, we can either lament the fact that they are not sort of you know, sort of uh, abstract animals that only are driven by raw numbers, but actually sympathetic, empathetic beings that are responding to sort of incredible stories. Instead of decrying that, we embrace it. And how do you create the context within which you elicit the natural potential for human beings to express care for others? Yeah. And storytelling, and you, you know, this as well, is such a compelling factor. So those two things have demonstrated what's, I think, a new model of, of campaigning organizing. Okay, now, is this not cool? Like, are people following this? Like, we have got to figure out how to utilize this platform, which brings us to our next question, which is, so have you seen people, I mean, I'm sure you have, but, I mean, are there notable examples that come to mind where folks have used this to change things in education? Yeah, 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 for sure. There, like I said, it's two things that's interesting. One is what we find is campaigns in certain issue areas tend to sort of themselves go viral in that once you demonstrate what's possible in a single domain, health or around gay rights or on immigration, it then inspires many other people. Yeah. And in, I will say education is one of the most early stage of these that's sort of starting to demonstrate success but hasn't yet gone viral in the way other issues have. Yeah. But it, there's a few examples I'll highlight as, as demonstration, and many actually outside the U.S. There's one, one of my favorite last year was there was, um, so in Thailand, there's a huge number of small villages, a very big divide between rural and city, as is the case in many countries, uh, much more though than the U.S. And uh, there's 6,000 small schools that the head of education in Thailand was going to close and collapse into bigger city schools. Uh, and there had been teachers that had been sort of lobbying against this for a number of years, but had been almost entirely ignored. Mm -hmm. And as a last-ditch effort, I think it was a fourth-grade teacher, starts a petition asking the head of education not to change the policy entirely, but to allow it to be opt-in these schools. Mm -hmm. Of course, ignored initially. Gets 10,000 signatures, then there's a first media hit, and then 20, and then there's five media hits, and then 40,000, and they start to do a march, taking the people that had joined to Bangkok, embarrassing the government. And it's literally on the front page every single day for a week. Not because I mean, the issue isn't new, but the story of rural teachers against the city's sort of government, not focused on what the needs of the people were, was completely compelling. And a week later, after years of ignoring it, the head of education announces they're going to let 100% opt in all the different towns to decide whether they want to collapse their school. So awesome demonstration of, of the power, I should say, of, of teachers have such an incredible sort of sympathetic narrative. Mm -hmm. People are, if you look at the, the, the sort of protagonists, the, the creators of campaigns, the kind of creators that are most sympathetic to people, mm -hmm. it's things like young kids, it's moms, it's teachers, to some extent, you know, veterans, depending on the country. And so of the characters of people who other people in society respond to, teachers are one among them. I'll, I'll mention maybe one or two others. One in, in Spain, a very popular campaign last year where uh, as a woman, there's apparently it's, it's uh, for books in many government schools, and there was just no lending program. The government had mostly mm -hmm. ignored this, and so a young mom finds this out, petitions the government to create a lending program, ignored. 
then gets a thousand signatures ignored again in the first media article in the same dynamic she builds a movement she delivers the petitions El País covers it you know the news sort of newspaper record in the country El Mundo the second biggest newspaper it embarrasses the government and they then adopt a full lending program for three million books a year across mm. Spain so anyway so these are happening now yeah. and I think the most important thing is we tell people to so lay out the problems you have the challenge you think most potent and powerful and then say well, those are all important to us. What is the first step to those bigger mm. challenges? What is the incremental thing that is still meaningful, but small enough to be winnable? And then what is the most compelling narrative around mm. that? What is the sort of, if you were to tell a story that would engage people around this issue, what is the most engaging story? Maybe a teacher and maybe a student. The students are immensely powerful. A young, I would say teenage girls are some of the most powerful people in America right now because they start these petitions and change policies of Fortune 500 companies. Not, I give you one example. There's almost a victory every hour of every day of every week. I mean, it's phenomenal. 10,000 mm. victories that have yeah. happened, just like the ones I've said. Yeah, it's incredible. Let me pause, because I remember from our conversation, too, that when you, that you all yourselves play a role in helping these kind of citizens who are using the platform be successful. How, how does that work? Yeah. So about 1,000 campaigns that get launched on the site every day, and we look through them, and these will just organically start. And we'll look through and we'll identify those that are going viral, that are really popular, and those who we think will resonate with large groups of people, yeah. be the kind of inspiring examples we like, and then we'll reach out to the creators. Because yeah. most of these people have never started movements before, and we call them micro-movements, small, specific campaigns. And we reach out to them, and we give them advice. And maybe something simple, like, hey, you're petitioning the president, it should really be your mayor, um, <laughs> or you're petitioning the industry group, what is the, most, what is the biggest brand in the industry group that's most susceptible to public pressure? Yeah. Sort of we call the power mapping. Uh, what are these sort of dynamics of influence and who, who should you petition? And sometimes it's literally going to you know, the Today Show in America, CNN or whatnot, and bringing a petition creator who mm. is 15 years old or is a mom who's never done this before and actually coaching her and training her and actually yeah. putting her and ha having her tell her story. So all that range, and the reason we do this is our goal is to build a culture of effective leadership and organizing. And so we don't want to do it ultimately to scale this. Mm. We need to be both demonstrate what's possible and then train other people. But to begin with, we do. And if people have ideas for campaigns they want to launch and they want feedback on those ideas, mm -hmm. they can definitely email us as well. And we'll probably the end of this um, give sort of contact information That's great. for that. Cool. Now, do you ever see groups kind of use this platform for ends that might you might not think are that great? Like, um, I mean, what if the folks who are doing the thing that you would most want to change from a social change perspective are actually using this? I mean, does that ever happen? Happens all the time. You know, one of the, I would say, the sort of the biggest controversies in our history um, as a social enterprise is there's two controversies. One, we're a B Corporation, which is a social benefit corporation, not a nonprofit, although I started mm -hmm. it as a nonprofit, um, which is another, so we can talk about it, one of the controversies. And the second is, hey, we're not just you know, playing for a particular partisan field, a certain side of the aisle, and we actually yeah. allow an open platform to empower anyone. And we think, I mean, unequivocally, that is by far the best way to scale an organization and to give true empowerment, to not mm -hmm. define an agenda. So we do let anyone at all, and we do see competing petitions sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, and what you look at is, you know, from our perspective, in, and it depends on the country, but let's say in the U.S. context, a lot of people think of left to right divide. We think of top-bottom divide. Mm -hmm. People that have power, which is a very small number of people, and, and everyone else. There's actually great research that came out of, I think, Yale and Princeton recently. Uh, 
sort of the, the opinions of the public have almost no discernible impact on the actual policies that come out of national policy, literally academic research, if you look at people's yeah. opinion polls. That's and crazy. so that is a shift that we fundamentally want to, to sort of, if you look at also the past 200 years of, of incredible increase in, in human rights and equality and fairness, it's basically the story of greater and greater numbers of people becoming empowered to have their own voice recognized in a public forum. And we're accelerating that. Now that means some people we think are crazy will also express their opinion. Um, and so those definitely happen. They just tend to be the mi minority of them. But there are mm -hmm. still hateful campaigns mm -hmm. sometimes. If they are violent or bullying, we'll mm -hmm. remove them. Um, but sometimes they're competing, and it's interesting to see that play out. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, feel free to chime in with questions here. Um, let me actually go to, I mean, so, so where are you now in this? I mean, give mm -hmm. us a sense of kind of when you think about where change.org is going and what you think the possibilities are. Yeah, so I think that we've done over the past few years, really just, although we've done this actually almost now, if I were to like be honest with myself, almost eight years now. So we launched in February 2007. Mm -hmm. um, it's always easier to be so like, oh, we just we launched. We launched at the same time, Teach for All. We're the same yeah. age. And, uh, and it's been, but it's been three years of like, um, you know, some success before They've only got 77 million people on their site, though. I mean, we'll have to ask Sarah Beth how we're doing on that. Well, it's, you know, it's internet <laughs> platforms have this dynamic, right? Internet platforms yeah. that are user-generated have this viral dynamic. Um, so we've, I think, we've demonstrated that it is possible for everyday people to come on, use online tools, and win offline change in systemic ways all over the place, all over the world. Like, that's been, mm. it's just clear. The next question is, okay, so they're winning lots of these, you know, incremental campaigns. If you look at systemic things like around immigration, around climate change, around corruption, around these things, we have clear visibility to the potential to disrupt those things at a national level all around the world, but it hasn't happened yet at nearly the scale mm -hmm. we think possible. I mean, we want a world in which you know, governments and companies have the incentive to respect the public interest instead of the private interest. Very basic. We just don't have that world right now. And we know it's a case that there's basically two things we need to, to do to make that possible. One is continued mass mobilization of, of the public. Like 77 million people is a lot, but we think half a billion is a yeah. lot more. And we think that the number of people that are potentially mobilizable is equal to the number of people that want to have voice in their own government, which is a lot. Yeah. So one is sort of how do you continue to grow that base of people and engage them and demonstrate that they have power. And the second is then, as you do that, you start to change incentives for both elected officials and companies. Um, where now, if you're an elected official, and you have 20%, and that's soon to be 50% of your voters that are on a platform asking you to change a policy, you're not gonna change a policy because you're nice. You're gonna change a policy because it's a voting imperative for electoral success. Mm -hmm. And we are just not there right now, but that is the absolute path we're on. Mm -hmm. So how do you have full transparency and accountability of elected officials and of companies? I think on the company side, you know, we are, we have relied historically on regulation as a mechanism of ensuring companies don't have negative third-party externalities, right? They're not degrading the environment, abusing worker rights and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I think that consumers can be that regulatory environment. If you have the ability for consumers to know what companies are doing, and to rapidly mobilize, to hold companies accountable, mm -hmm. and to have to defend their practices in public, you actually start giving companies the economic incentive to behave as if they don't just care about economics. It's a sort of strange thing where you start to actually properly incentivize people in power to do what's in the public interest, mm. and that is sort of the future vision of the company. Hmm. This is so cool. I mean, so going back to the research you cited, yeah. was that in the U.S. or that was global? It's in the U.S. I think it's probably as bad yeah. globally. I yeah. mean, it depends, maybe not in Western Europe, but I think no, certainly. No, because people might think that in, in a real democracy that would be less the case than in, in other. But um, so like going back to a 
beautiful example of that in the U.S. in the last year, just that whole gun control yeah. situation where we had like something like, I think the polls were showing like 90% yeah. of the public wanted a certain law and yet it w didn't get through. 89% wanted background checks for potential criminals before buying guns. Yeah. Now, was there any any <laughs> activity on change? Yes, it was tremendous. This is actually a great illustration of this yeah. dynamic between sort of changing national laws or building sort of national movements through local campaigns. So 89% sort of desired this regulation, this law, and the Senate in the United States did not pass it. Um, and it's because of special interest politics. Now there's two ways of reacting to that. Well, three, one is just ignoring it and becoming despondent. Um, but the second is trying to continue to hit your head against a wall, trying to pass the national bill. The second is, what are things that are big enough to be meaningful, but small enough to be winnable? Well, there is a tremendous number of campaigns. And there's a group, uh, actually funded by Michael Bloomberg, now partnered with them, mm -hmm. that has started using change.org to do these local campaigns mm -hmm. to incrementally build the movement wow. from the ground up. So they said they started petitioning, uh, I think now it's Kroger's, it's a big grocery chain in the United States, and, and, and private companies have the ability to change, there's something called concealed carry in a lot of states in the US, which means you can actually have a concealed weapon on you, uh, but you can't do it, you can do it in the public, but not necessarily private property. So there are companies that if you walk into a store, you actually can change the regulation in your own company to say, hey, you can't have a gun in our premises. Now, no company's really done this because they don't want to get involved in politics, but now this group Moms Demand Action, using moms and using change.org, have started petitioning these major, first Kroger's and a bunch of other major uh, retailers to come out and say, we don't want to have any guns in our stores, and they're winning. First one, then two, soon I think to be 10, hmm. and changing the industry. What are the other things? You can imagine them saying, we think we want to have no advertisements for guns in newspapers in America. You can imagine moms, 500 in 500 cities, petitioning their own newspaper and saying, we want you not to accept ads for guns. You can win those all over the place. And so while those may not be the most important campaigns, nearly as important as background checks nationally, the way to get to something like background checks is to build the movement through specific campaigns that are winnable incrementally over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, couple of questions. These questions from, from the field. The internets. Believe it or not, this one is coming in from London, from Phil McComish. Um, so at Teach for All, we sometimes struggle to explain what we do in a really simple, compelling way, especially because what we're working for is so systemic, and this makes it hard for people to understand us quickly. Many of the examples you've shared have been ones where people have worked to make small incremental changes and in which seem intuitive You know, as soon as you hear them. Have you seen a correlation between how specific and easy to implement the demand for change is and the success of that campaign in galvanizing support. Yeah, completely. This is one of these very interesting dynamics. Most people assume that the broader their campaign, the more generic, the more people it might appeal to, the more people that would join. It's almost the exact, I mean, it's not the exact opposite, but that's not the case. Because people can't get inspired by generalities, by things that are broad, that are a pledge that I care, I want to stand up against climate change. Yeah. If you have two campaigns, one is stand against climate change. The second is, you know, pass a law to, pa you know, sort of, let's say, add a tax on plastic bags in Chicago, Illinois. The second will actually, in most cases, get more signatures, mm -hmm. if it has a compelling story. There's actually a campaign around that where there's a 13-year-old girl who's trying to pass a tax on plastic bags just outside Illinois. Mm -hmm. 100,000 people join the big generic national petition that is just not inspiring. It's not the kind of thing people get excited about, yeah. not the sort of thing you'd share, because because sharing and peer-to-peer -peer distribution is such a core component of galvanizing people, if it doesn't actually, if you don't read it and say, oh my God, I can't believe it, and I want to yeah. join and push this to other people, then others won't either. Yeah. 
doesn't this make you want to just go start a petition? Like, I'm racking my brain right now. 100,000 people? Like, that's incredible. Okay, from Nick Enna, who's somewhere here. Um, uh, why did you choose to move to a B Corp from nonprofit status? So one of the, the most difficult decision uh, in my life, besides sort of deciding to move from finance, was this. So in 2006, we were a nonprofit. I said I, I care about making change. Um, and then I started investigating and looked at what are the, the organizations that look most like us and what are the cru crucial components of their success. Mm -hmm. And the organizations that look most like us uh, weren't like the Red Cross or Habitat for Humanity. They look like Google and they look like you know, uh, YouTube at the time. They look at these massive internet platforms. And I said, what are the crucial components of success? There's two things really. One is speed of iteration. And the second is rapid scale. On the speed of iteration, it is how do you look at data once you launch the first product and rapidly shift in such a way that you can actually you know, optimize on the, the new path? And mm -hmm. this happens a lot in internet companies. You start launch a product, it doesn't actually work, you need to shift immensely. Mm -hmm. And the second is, once you hit that success, you need to be able to actually support 100 million users over three years and raise tens of millions of dollars from zero. And if you look at the only institutions that have been able to do both those things, they're almost all companies. And the, the, the sort of small iterations, you can do it as a nonprofit, but as an early founder, one of the challenges I think we've seen in the nonprofit sector is foundations fund solutions, not problems. So if we had raised money from foundations in the beginning, our solution was a social network for social change. But that actually wasn't needed. And so when we realized actually we need to do a petition platform, I would have had gone through a process of deliberation with my board and gotten approval. I literally shifted in 12 days the entire yeah. orientation of the company as you need to in internet time to focus on what's possible. Yeah. And the second thing is once we found uh, it was successful, we needed to raise capital. And I hadn't, I, going from, as you know, incrementally, over time, you build your capacity to raise money. Yeah. We had not really raised much money, and then we raised you know, almost $17 million in a single round through the Omidyar network, which is both you know, for-profit and non-profit, all social enterprise, mm -hmm. and other mission-related investors. So that's why we, don't, we say we don't actually, we're not a company despite caring about social change. It's we're a company because we care about social change. Mm -hmm. And in this model, being a company from a legal structure perspective is actually better than being a non-profit. Mm -hmm have to give that one some thought <laughs> here at Teach for All. Um, so actually, let's talk about, so you're operating in all these different countries, yeah. but you started in the US. Yeah. Um, how, what's your take? I mean, do you feel like you're learning things because you're taking a, a global approach yeah. that are influencing? I mean, how is this playing out in your world? I mean, it's immensely exciting what we, we do. We almost see these, there's a few dynamics at play. One is almost like, we don't think of them as pilot projects, but they oftentimes, different countries will innovate based upon either the different dynamics in their country or frankly, the different capabilities of the entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, we have an entrepreneur in, in, in Spain, uh, Francisco Polo, who started Change.org Spain, and it's this incredible thing. We have a TV show in Spain, which once a week features people-powered campaigns that go interview mm. the petition creator on the biggest news channel in the country. Like, we definitely don't do that in the US. We now do it in Italy as well because mm. it was inspired by the Spanish team. We now uh, have a partnership with CNN International, or IBN, what it is in India, uh, because the guy who ran our team there worked at CNN International in India. And so we do see the ability for them to sort of dynamically yeah. inspire each other through tests. The one thing I, I will say that is a, admittedly a challenge for us, we talk about 
I mean, we're, we're an American, uh, sort of initially American organization because I'm an American. Um, the goal is not to be, I mean, it's to be a global organization that happens to have a founder that happens to be American. Um, and that is both uh, something that we are moving to and something that's a challenge. It's mm -hmm. not easy. I mean, you know, you want to be a fully global organization, institution, fully embrace the cultural diversity and not have an Americentric kind of vague view. And we are, have been pivoting out of that. We are doing well at the progress, but it is a work in progress. And what are the biggest aspects of that? I mean, wh what are the things that you're taking on in that pursuit? I mean, so I'll give examples of how it manifests and then what we're doing. Uh, on the manifestation, we were on an all-team call recently, um, and somebody on the team, you know, references, oh, yeah, in the, the 2016 elections, you know, we got to really think about that. And this is a global call, and, like, most people don't care at all about the American <laughs> 2016 election. It was an, an embedded assumption that yeah. other people would sort of know, and, you know, increasingly most of the company will be outside the U.S. So just yeah. a cultural awareness uh, around that. And the second is, is for how we do this. It's how do you have uh, an executive team? Initially, you know, we're most all of us in the executive team are in, in the United States. It's how do you make sure leaders from around the world are deeply embedded as much as possible, mm -hmm. despite the difficulty of geography and time zone. It isn't easy, but it's thinking about that. And I think yeah. also traveling. I mean, me traveling to other countries hasn't happened as much as I like, but I think it's a both a signal and it also allows me to embrace what's happening outside the U.S. Yeah, yeah, cool. Questions? Yeah. Actually, they're not uh, related, but I'll just ask you both and you can answer whatever. One is about countries that are not democracies yeah. or where the government like is not open to people petitioning. I can imagine those are the countries that kind of need change.org even more. And how do you break into them, A? And B, kind of on the flip side, how do you deal with sort of petition fatigue? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I am on every email list of every organization and yep. I have experienced petition fatigue. So. Totally. Great questions. Um, I'll actually do the petition fatigue first is I think that what's interesting, you know, people don't talk oftentimes about, about photo fatigue, but actually people are, are actually looking and taking like literally 10 to 100 times more photos than ever before. I mean, tremendous increase. And the reason they don't talk about that is because the photos are really cool and they're really good. And so what we found is if you can give people, deliver them campaigns that are of interest to them, that are directly relevant, that are actually winnable, in many cases that are local to them, they get much less fatigue. Mm. The challenge that we have is we have not actually built a good enough personalization engine to make sure that people, when they receive all these campaigns, they're exactly aligned with your interests, that they're local, that they're real-time, and whatnot. So for us, the goal is not so much should you send someone a petition or not, it's do you have something compelling enough to warrant their time? Because I think in the future, I mean, the future of this is, I mean, our phones will be remote controls for the world, and you will walk to drop your kid off at school, and there'll be a notification of the biggest campaign that someone has started on Change.org in that school. You'll see all the trending campaigns in the school. You'll go by your, hmm. sort of, you know, there's your back of your house, and there's someone who's petitioned around. Dump, there's actually a woman who I was talking to in New York. The dump truck would back up early in the morning and have this incredible beeping sound, and so they petitioned the city to not have it actually have the beeping sound, and she won the campaign in the morning. These things are the kind of things that actually, like, people really yes. care about. Oh, yeah. And that's not to decry. That's something to embrace. So how do we broaden our perspective? I think that's right that people we fatigue about signing a petition to the national government of whatever country all the time, but things are specific and incredibly material to your 
life. It's around your university, around where you teach, or around where your kids go to sort of after school, and it's a park next to your town. All these things, the intimacy is really important and the experience. So our challenge is not so much the number of petitions, how do we ensure the quality, both at how compelling they are to you and how likely they are to win. And so that's a big focus of ours. Same as video, if you look at, you know, you, you find um, one of the guys who's sort of involved in the company is, a, um, is Evan Williams, who's a co-founder of Twitter, and he talks about how the most successful internet properties are things that were previously very difficult to do. And internet, the internet, the web, made it dramatically easier and dramatically increased sort of the production of that. So video, for example. There's more video uploaded online right now than all the video ever produced in all of history until, I think, 1995. Hmm. And on the photos, there's more photos taken every day now than probably all the photos ever taken in all of history until probably about almost 2,000. I mean, it's ridiculous. And I think we're going to see not the same kind of scale in petitions, but something quite similar. And there's going to be a dramatic increase. It'll just be more personalized, more local, and more compelling. And how are you going about, I know yeah. there's another question. No, no, it's fine. To, but how are you going Doing about, that? yeah. Yeah, so uh, one of the big focuses of the, the organization now is building out a product and engineering team. Uh, and, uh, and one of the people we're sort of, I guess, I think we've, we're about to hire, I hope, um, it's a big data science team. So mm -hmm. people that are looking at all the data about user behavior, about campaigns in their neighborhood, using their friend associations, all the attributes we know about people to personalize the mm -hmm. experience. Uh, and so we just need to get better at that data optimization mm. and personalization. And then on the, the, the phone stuff, the geolocation functionality of phones is the most potent force. Yeah. Not just I'm on my phone a lot, I can spend time. It's I'm in this physical location, I should get notified. So the data science team we're building is, is the most important part there. That's incredible. Yeah. So how far away are we from that? Uh, <laughs> on the phone, within the, I'll, I'll give like the widest possible time. Before the end of next year. Um, wow. We'll have it. Hopefully is oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we'll get better and better. It'll take us a while to get really good at it. But having an app that gives you notifications and is geo-aware yeah. and notifies, it won't be precise, but in the future, you'll walk into a major retailer, uh, and it, let's say it's Walmart, and you'll get a notification of the top campaign that's targeting Walmart that they have not responded to. And so Walmart will know 10% of my customers are walking in, and it's <laughs> my store, are seeing like the one unethical oh thing that's gosh. happening and whatnot. The goal is omnipresence. It, 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 I mean, it's just, it's almost like an efficiency thing where you actually have all these people that care about issues and the sort of impediment is just connecting those people around them, most making them aware of it and then connecting them. Historically, you'd sit out in front of Walmart with a clipboard and try to capture those people, but two problems. One is even if you capture them on a clipboard, you can't easily mobilize them for secondary action, yeah. which is why these campaigns are important. The reason they're powerful is the person who's the decision maker movement of people who could potentially take second right. or third or fifth actions. And the second is no one wants to sit in front of Walmart all day long, and most people don't, unless it's Thanksgiving, and that's mm. before we want to buy a bunch of presents. And um, it's a very uniquely American thing, sorry. Um, but anyway, so that's, uh, I think th yeah. that's going to be soon. And then the other question was, oh, yes, yes. So um, we've taken a, a strategy similar almost to Facebook where the, so there's two things. One is the, the most impact we will have is in countries in which there's least citizen voice in many cases. Yeah. Um, the challenge is the best path to those people is not going there first. It's actually going to the lower hanging fruit of where we can mobilize others in countries that are in the same region, people even that are middle class. You know, we've talked a lot about it would be great if we can go mobilize farmers in Kenya or people in rural areas in India with simpler applications. The best way to get there, to get the scale, the resources, the competence, the brand, 
um, you know, and just the relationships is actually going to sort of the lower hanging fruit first. So right now we're the 18 countries we've established a presence in, we actually identify the biggest social media markets that have some form of representative government that's fairly open, where we won't get shut down or whatnot. But yeah, the most exciting are going into other countries. Mm. I mean, Russia, I'd say, is probably on the far edge of what's happening right now. We actually do, we don't have staff in Russia because of the danger, um, but we have a you know, Belarusian on our team uh, who speaks Russian and has relationships there, and we have more than two million users in Russia. And they wow. are not mostly petitioning national campaigns, which is dangerous, but actually around stopping, there was a recently a, a hospital that was gonna be shut down to the public and only made available to members of parliament. Um, in a certain uh, a certain state mm. in, in Russia. And there's citizen outrage, nothing happened. Starts a change world campaign, gets a ton of media outreach, ends up becoming embarrassing for the government. They turn it around and keep it open. You know, things that are wow. important for the lives they touch, small at scale, but they're dem it's almost like they're giving an opportunity for citizens who don't have that experience to get the experience of citizen voice participation, affirms that they actually can make a difference, which I think over time will be really powerful. Do you have like security guards for yourself? We do, I mean, this is, I, I, well, I won't say, like, I think in the future, if it's a case, <laughs> this is like, if it's a case that we don't have security issues, I don't have security issues, then we're yeah. clearly not having the impact that we need to have. Yeah. I mean, just sincerely, right? It's not yeah. that we're aspiring to do that. Yeah. But. No, it's, like, serious stuff. Um, before I even get to this, like, I'm just sitting here thinking, first of all, so the woman with the beeping trash, or big Oh, truck, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like, how did people... Who signed on to her petition? All people in that neighborhood. And so uh, was she spreading the word to those people? Yeah, so she has, I think there's like a neighborhood email list that they okay, have. So she's so promoting it, yep. and that's how it's happening. Yep. So like in a world, I mean, there's something slightly scary to me, I have to admit, about what you're saying, because I look at the blogosphere, mm -hmm. where the kind of hatred. Passions and, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and the people most passionate, almost against positive change sometimes end up crowding out the other stuff. And you just think about the ways in which this could, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess, what, what's your theory? What's the your tyranny of, of the that? minority in many cases. Yes, the idea that's that sort of you know, small groups of people that are unrepresentative and that are angry. Right. So I think that historically that has absolutely been the case, uh, that most people that have joined political campaigns, not all, online, yeah. um, this is why a lot of historically the sort of more political groups have had fairly small memberships. Uh, it's actually the case that, that the transformation is how do you make campaigns accessible and of interest to a much wider audience and things that are not just pitched and partisan but transcendent and inspirational. And so when you have campaigns more like, you know, there's a, there's a big healthcare campaign last year around this young woman who was, uh, had two, she needed, she's had cystic fibrosis and has two lungs she needs a transplant in, she was about to die, there's a government policy that prevents her from re receiving adult lungs, a long story, she ends up winning this campaign, it was huge. Mm -hmm. It brought together not people that are used to being involved in politics, but people that are in fact on the opposite, which like think politics is anathema, but because mm -hmm. the incredible personal story and how compelling it was, two things happened. One is non-partisan sort of passionate mm -hmm. people joined, and two, it joined people from both sides. Yeah. And so I think what's exciting is how do you mobilize not the 5%, but actually the 50% of people who want to be engaged, and I think we can do it. Yeah. Uh, and the second is how do you do so in a way, and in a manner that doesn't just engage those large audiences on polar opposites, right. but uses the kind of storytelling and identifies the possibilities of areas of unity. And I think there are definitely those that are just not of interest to national politicians in mm. many countries to identify because they don't get votes by unifying, but rather by dividing. This is really fascinating. Um, 
Okay. Um, uh, this is uh, from email. Can you talk about any examples of campaigns that were seemingly local but were sort of, they somehow seem to have global appeal, like mm. they caught on globally, to your surprise? I mean, the first is probably uh, there was a petition um, in Canada from a man in Canada about uh, Malala. This is, you know, before she was quite, I mean, she was already sort of prominent to some extent, before it really blew up, and she, she um, the petition was, to Prime Minister Harper uh, to nominate Malala for the Nobel Prize. It was sort of nominating communities a few hundred people globally. Um, and President Harper tweets, says, yes, I'm going to nominate Malala for Nobel Prize. Mm. And then a second petition starts in the UK, and then sort of Prime Minister in the UK does the exact same thing, and it starts going viral, and campaigns all around the world start to try to mobilize this, this, this sort of global force. Mm. And so you do see people that will inspire others in mm. other countries that become either sort of mimicked campaigns or in collaboration with each other. And I think one of the most exciting things on the internet is, is not this uh, where you're, you know, siphoning people off into, you know, filter bubbles, the idea that people are only going to be communicating with people they agree with. What's most exciting is the lateral connections, that when you have stories that sort of, tra sort of transcend uh, country lines, and now because of social media, you can actually communicate in easy ways. Like those global campaigns that start in a specific country, I think are hugely exciting. And something we frankly haven't, done a lot to facilitate. There's trans, you know, translation issues, but we'll soon crowdsource that likely as well to make it easier for campaigns to be in a single country and hop. I, it's also the case, I'll say one other thing, that you end up finding, tragically, I think, um, that many countries care more about their international reputation than their reputation amongst their own population. Uh, so Saudi is a good example of this, Saudi Arabia. Um, there is a, there's a woman named Minal Sharif um, who uh, created a video of herself driving in Saudi Arabia a few years ago and was arrested for it because women, of course, can't drive in Saudi Arabia. She's totally irrational. And uh, she ends up having all these women start uh, mobilizing called Saudi Women for Driving. And they started a change.org petition asking the king uh, to, uh, asking the king to release Manal. And of course, the king doesn't care because he's a king. That's uh, what you get to do uh, if you're king, <laughs> sort of in the title. Uh, and so they asked us, well, what can we do? And he said, well, who has power over the king or the kingdom that's outside the country. He's like, well, the most powerful person is probably Hillary Clinton. Like, great, well, Hillary Clinton probably supports her cause. Why don't you petition her? And so they petitioned Hillary Clinton to become the first U.S. official to come out against a major Saudi policy outside. Now, this is very awkward for Secretary Clinton at the time because uh. she clearly supports this. She's like the most prominent female sort of woman of uh, sort of advancing empowerment literally in the past probably 30, 40 years. Um, but she can't because of political sort of strictures. So it ends yeah. up being the case that 10,000 people join and then there's a piece, I think MSNBC asks her about it and she says we're in private discussions with the Saudis and 10,000 more people join and it's all Twitter and then these women in Saudi Arabia write an open letter to Hillary Clinton as representative of female empowerment, asking her to stand up for women's rights in Saudi. And then 180 degree turn, the next day, Hillary Clinton comes out and says, full force, you know, we think that women should be able to drive in Saudi Arabia, breaking with the traditional diplomacy mm. of deferring to the Saudis. Um, and what was powerful wow. there is the power of the sort of, in this case, Americans had, although the, the next day, what do they do? Didn't stop with her. They petitioned Catherine Ashton, who was the foreign secretary of the EU, to also condemn the Saudi policy, which she also does, right? So this mm -hmm. idea of using sort of what is the biggest thing to be meaningful, but mm -hmm. smallest to be winnable, and getting all these people off the fence who would mm -hmm. normally have condemned, but who when called to public accountability have a very difficult time defending not taking a stance. Cool. This is just I can't. I, I'm racking my brain. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Of course.
So I'm part of LEAD, Leadership Educational Equity here. Uh, we are a TFA affiliate organization that's focused on leadership development, mm -hmm. and we focus on collective action a lot. Yeah. So we're working here in New York, which is TFA's largest alumni region. So we have 5,000 alumni, 2,500 LEAD members. The potential here is great. Totally. But this is also the busiest city on earth. How do we get mind share in the minds of our members enough so that we can keep them engaged yep. and really do some great things here? And how can we work with change.org to make that happen? Yeah, so that's awesome, by the way, and great to hear. And I know there's a huge contingent here. Um, so I'd say two things. What we found is the best way to engage people is through just an incredible, compelling narrative storytelling campaign that wins. Because most people, you know, we, people aren't inherently sort of either engaged or apathetic. When they're apathetic, they're usually bred that way and they because all available experience has shown them they can't make a difference. When you actually give someone a taste of victory, it is intoxicating. People will love it. I lie. I was just wasn't an activist historically, but you join these campaigns and they win and you're this is amazing. And so what I would recommend, the first step is saying, okay, what are the changes we want? Right? What's the sort of the, the what are the most important policies? And then okay, is that too aspirational, too big? What are the specific things we can win as a first step? It literally could be like and you know you want to change a TV show and it's an average TV show, or it is a board member of the company that is advertising that TV show. It could be very narrow and specific. And think of what is going to excite people, what is winnable, and then drive that first thing. Instead of saying, hey, we're going to launch a new movement of everyone launching change door campaigns or engaging people, it's like, let's do one and demonstrate it's possible. You get media exposure. And these are the things that could spread through networks as well. Uh, I think you'll find that then it may not mobilize everyone, but then there's a second one, and then there's a third, and then you're actually seeing these people who clearly care deeply about education transformation, they're actually seeing it happen not just because of the direct work they're doing, but because of the work they're doing on the advocacy side, in large part leveraging their knowledge, their networks, and the public narrative of teachers coming together that want to make a difference. And that is a potent force. If you, you know, as, as you know well know, the, there's, there's many entrenched interests in, in all different sort of advocacy areas, and, and education is one of them. And it's difficult um, to, I think the one way you transcend a lot of kind of traditional lines is to use the voices of people that are in the system that are really working every day, and teachers obviously are the most conspicuous ones. So, yeah. are there kind of analogous groups that are trying to generate sort of citizen action within their groups? Like, so we've got these five thousand folks. Mm -hmm. We basically need them to figure. We need some of them to get their head around this platform yep. and be like, how do we utilize this to affect the change that we want to see? Yep. So I'd say there's two groups probably that are best examples. One is climate change, or on the climate side, where they're thinking, um, and they've used us and used, uh, you know, they started their own campaigns on their own mm -hmm. side as well, um, but thinking, okay, how do we use this new distributed model to sort of have influence over uh, climate change? Well, one of the small things we can do, we're a bunch of students, we could actually, you know, petition our own schools to not just uh, divest from oil companies, but actually commit to not using any dirty coal within 10 years, remove all dirty coal from all the energy source from those schools. And actually, I think both Stanford and potentially Harvard, but Stanford just announced because of this campaign, mm -hmm. um, this one was not on, you know, most of the petitions increasing on the internet are on, on change.org, but this was not, but inspired by, you know, the similar yeah. kind of mental model. Um, so I think climate thinking strategically and structurally about this distributed, narrative-driven, mm -hmm. incremental uh, yeah. process. And then the other is, in a more loose way, is immigration movement. What's interesting is five years ago, before the sort of national immigration reform was, was, was possible, I mean, it was possible then as well, but before there was more movement, 
Uh, there's all these you know, DreamAx students, so kids who come into the, the country, usually age two, five, six, oftentimes don't know they're not documented, um, but they're not, and they find out when they're about to go to college and they try to apply for federal student aid, they realize they're not a citizen, and they get oftentimes detained and they can be deported to countries they don't even know. And this starts happening, um, this has been happening, but somebody starts to change their petition, calling on their own U.S. member of Congress mm -hmm. to come out against this for this, there's a specific kid who has been arrested. He literally had come to the country at age two, didn't even speak Spanish, was going to be you know, directed back to Guatemala, um, and a friend starts a petition, and it wins. And it basically embarrasses the local member of Congress who thinks this is ridiculous, this is you know, an American like anyone else, and stays his execution. Mm -hmm. And then a second one wins, and then a fifth one wins. And now many immigration attorneys know that when they start a case, they oftentimes have a friend or family member start a change or petition mm -hmm. in concert with it to raise awareness about this and get political people engaged. Mm -hmm. Wow, cool. Um, one last question from Becca Ships here. Um, what are some interesting data trends that you've seen? Like, have you seen over time like shifts in demographic user demographics of users or anything like that? Yep, I think the most exciting stuff is probably the trend of women and girls starting campaigns. Mm. So if you look at like. It's funny, the, the, the number of campaigns that are started, it's, it's half 50-50, um, men and women. Uh, the number of victories, it's 60-40, so 50% more. So it's much more likely that women will win campaigns. Oh, that makes uh, total sense to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More focus, a lot yeah. more determination, Absolutely. sort of, you know, not being distracted easily. Yeah. Um, no, but sincerely, and we, we find it's also that, that women are more likely to inspire other women as well. And so yeah. some of our favorite campaigns are, in fact, young women in particular, is a great campaign um, around... Uh, in the, the 2012 uh, election cycle in the U.S., there's, um, uh, there are three girls outside of New York in, in, uh, that find out that there hasn't been a female moderator of a U.S. presidential debate in 20 years, once in history. It's been all men. There's one woman that's done it for sort of vice presidential and one for, for presidential. Anyway, so instead of writing a paper, they had seen that other young girls start petitions as well, and so they decided to petition the presidential debate committee to accept a female moderator. What happens? 100,000 people join, huge national press. They train it down to DC. They do a big demonstration in front of the debate commission. The next week, Candy Crowley of CNN becomes the first female moderator mm. of a US presidential debate in 20 years. And it's in large part because they were inspired by other young girls, and then they inspired others as well. How many of the users or initiators of these campaigns are kids? I don't know on the data. It's tough because we don't take, we don't actually okay. accept uh, sort of ages. But I will say from the public victories, things that are really conspicuous, large numbers of people, especially the press, it's probably a third to a half. I think we just got the key. This oh, is... Oh, I mean, kids are like the this most... This makes so much look, if sense. You, I say, you know, if, if you are fortunate to have a CEO or an old yeah. stodgy, you know, male politician, and you're debating an 11-year-old girl on TV, you've already <laughs> lost. Like, there's no way to win that battle. This is good. So... And it's so empowering for the kids. Oh, my God, it's incredible. They're growing up... Yeah. The fourth grade classes winning campaigns on a regular basis. Actually, in fact, teachers will oftentimes, in fact, the last one I'll mention yeah. is um, there's a campaign where Crayola, uh, the Crayola pens, yeah, this class, this fourth grade class in California found out that they'd not been recycling. And there's no recycling program for these pens. Hundreds of millions of people use them. And they petitioned Crayola to create some, you know, sort of recyclable uh, product or actually yeah. to allow this to be recycled. Crayola get 80,000 amazing for these kids. They created a video. It's the cutest. Carilla says no. Two weeks after that, CEO of Dixon Pencils, you know, Dixon, the number two pencils, comes and says, we've never had a recycling 
recycling program. This is awesome. Does a press conference with a fourth grade class <laughs> announcing a new recycling program. <laughs> so what happens next? Carola, like, kind of like with its tail between its legs, comes back and says, we're going to do it too. So Crayola <laughs> announces a recycling program as well. So that is a brilliant. Awesome teacher. Uh, teachers have immense power too. around that. <laughs> What's, uh, what's next for you guys? This is so amazing. Thank you so much Thank you. for making Thanks the so time. Thanks so much. Yeah. For more information about Teach for All, visit teachforall.org.